0: Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Buddhaṁ dhammaṁ sanghaṁ namasāmi Good evening, friends, fellow Dhamma-farers, O children of the Noble Ones, most excellent assembly of medium-sized beings. I uh, saw Joseph Goldstein uh, a little earlier at, at uh, dinner time, and uh, he came over. And uh, he asked me at some point what what I was gonna talk about tonight. And when I told him, he he nodded in approval. (laughs) He said, good. He said, is it going to be straight ahead, Dhamma? And I said, yeah, (laughs) kinda. (laughs) So I felt moved to uh, dedicate this talk to Joseph who's been a, a teacher, colleague, uh, always a supporter of mine in so many ways, and um, yeah, someone for whom I have deep respect, great affection, and um, yeah, much gratitude for his teaching over many, many years now. There's a story that dates from the time of the Buddha after he began teaching. And this is the story of uh, Upatissa, who would become known as Venerable Sariputta and uh, become known as uh, one of the the Buddha's two chief disciples. And he was... uh, very close friends, maybe a relative of uh, Kolita, who became known as the Venerable Maha Moggallana, uh, the second of the Buddha's two chief disciples. And they were um, Dhamma brothers, at least. I can't remember, Jaya, were they related? Don't remember. I asked Jaya, thanks. They were cousins, thank you. And they had made a promise to one another that if either of them were to meet with a teacher or hear of teachings, that um, seemed like the real deal, that they would tell the other one. They were wandering ascetics, searching and practicing. And one morning in uh, Rajagaha, uh, Upatissa saw the Venerable Asaji on alms round and uh, Asaji was uh, one of the first five uh, disciples of the Buddha when he t- gave his first teaching, that one, of the first, uh, one of the five ascetics who had been practicing with him and then uh, heard his um, first teaching of the dhamma chaka the discourse setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma. And so Asaji was uh, on round in Rajagaha and Upatisa saw him. And he had a very uh, serene and dignified, uh, calm demeanor and appearance. And, and uh, Upatisa thought to himself, never before have I seen such an ascetic, an ascetic like this. Surely he must be one who has attained arahantship or be one who is practicing the path leading to arahantship, to full awakening. What if I were to approach him and ask, for whose sake have you retired from the world? Who is your teacher? Whose doctrine do you profess? And so after at a suitable time he approached Venerable Asaji and asked him these questions Who is your teacher? What is his teaching? And and Asaji said, I am new, I am young in the Dhamma. Uh, I should not you should not ask me, you should ask my teacher. And Sari well, the one who would become Sariputta Upatissa said, "It's okay. Just give me a little bit of something. I'll get it. <laughs> <laughs> just, just give me a little bit. A small, short teaching." And so he was Asaji was persuaded, and he said these uh, lines: Ye Dhamma te tesam hetum tatagato aha, tesanca yo nirodo." Ewamwadi Mahasamano. Of those phenomena which arise from causes, those causes have been taught by the Tathagata and their cessation also. This is the teaching of the great ascetic, the Mahasamano. And it's said that uh, Upatisa realized stream entry halfway through this short teaching. (laughs) So he was, you know, he he was right when he said, I'll get it. (laughs) It's amazing, I think, the power that words have at times to lead us to wordless understanding. You know there are all these stories in these in the uh, in the suttas where uh, the Buddha or perhaps another teacher gives a a teaching, and at the end all five hundred who are listening become enlightened or at least attain some level of awakening and I used to think that 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 was put in later to kind of make the Buddha look good but I had my own experience and at times in my own practice listening to the dhamma this was especially true at one point practicing with Sayadaw Upandita where it became so clear to me because of my own experience at that time that if one were listening in the right way if the timing was there if the mind and heart were ripe, and it was the right teaching, that of course one, one could realize awakening. It seemed so, of course, to me, obvious, this possibility. And so you never know. And the way we listen is really important. If we listen from depth, and sometimes things go in, in a deeper way. There's a uh, a charming kind of postscript to the story of uh, Venerable Asaji's teaching to Upatisa, who would become then Sariputta. And this was uh, involved a misunderstanding where um, other monks at one point, they would see Sariputta um, turning and bowing in, a, in a particular directions. And they thought he was engaging in some kind of um, rite or ritual of, of facing the directions and doing some some kind of practice that he should have let go of. And they went to the Buddha. And uh, the Buddha said, no, he's bowing in the direction where his teacher, where Venerable Asaji is, uh, is residing. And he also said to have slept with his head in that pointing in that direction if he knew where the Venerable Asaji was as his first teacher, as the one who had introduced him and led to his uh, entering the stream of the Dhamma. And I have a personal connection to Venerable Asaji because when I first took robes, that was my name. I was given that name. And this simple teaching, this reflection that I I read to you, which we can see is a, a very abbreviated uh, presentation of the teaching on the Four Noble Truths. That there is, uh, it's expressed in terms of cause and effect, but there's this uh, teaching, suffering, there is a cause of suffering. And there is the release, the cessation of that. So understanding, there is this cause, there is the release of that. So when, because of this, because of clinging in the mind, suffering, no clinging, no suffering, you could say, very shorthand there. When this, because of this, that arises. When this ceases, that ceases. And this takes us right to the heart of the teachings. We can see them in terms of this Understanding of causality, of cause and effect. And this points to the conditioned nature of all experience, of those phenomena which arise from causes, in the words in this teaching from Venerable Asaji. It takes us to a, a practical, direct, uh, in the moment sense and experience of, of what. The understanding of anatta is pointing to this flow of cause and condition, empty of any solid, abiding core or any one who is controlling it. It's also key to understanding the Buddha's teachings on kamma or karma, kamma in Pali, karma in Sanskrit, and and this teachings and reflections and uh, pointings to the understanding of kamma, of karma. Is these are found throughout the teachings. They, it's there in many, many places and different ways. And and having a relationship to a meaningful understanding of the teachings on karma are are seen as an aspect of wise or right view. We don't maybe hear teachings on this subject that often. And often this subject, there's a lot of confusion, misunderstanding. I think this relates at least in part to the fact that this word karma has has gotten woven into the everyday speech, at least in this country over the past decades. And we hear it a lot. We might even use it in a casual way I no. guess it's just my karma or instant karma's going to get you or <laughs> my karma just ran over your dogma this <laughs> bumper sticker you might have seen somewhere <laughs> <laughs> And there's some connection to what the teaching is pointing to in these these expressions you know or what goes around comes around these things that are are said and there's some Relationship to the understanding there. But it reinforces a superficial relationship to the teaching. It's an oversimplification of it in a very unfortunate way. Generates a lot of confusion and questions, as I said. You know, Do teachings on karma mean I have to believe in rebirth? If there's no self who experiences the fruits of past actions? Is the suffering that I or someone else experiences the result of something I did in a past life and is it somehow my fault you know there can be this sense almost of of a blame as though as though karma is some functions like fate and it's, it's some force that emerges out of the past that we're somehow responsible for but powerless to do anything about and brings up questions around free will. Is there free will? Is there such a thing? Is everything just preordained? This unfolding of conditions and causes flowing on, flowing toward fixed destinies. I think we have to be careful as we explore this teaching and And careful not to use this teaching as if it functioned like a kind of reflective device that would account for our own or another's present circumstances or or address issues like illness or or poverty or life circumstances, although everything could be reduced down to the unfolding of of karmas, It's simplistic and misguided use of this teaching only causes harm, adds to the suffering in the world. It's just not useful. And I don't think it was the teachings that were ever intended to be used that way. I think it's a mistake. But what is useful in terms of the teachings on kama, on karma, what it can do, this understanding, and a a real direct practical relationship to it is is serve as an aid, a kind of, focal point for how we respond to the present moment for choices we make here and now in response to what's happening that's where it's really useful and when we we dig into this topic a little bit and begin to explore it it's really helpful to bear in mind that the functioning of Cause and effect in our lives in the world is vast and very complex and Winnie touched on this uh, in a reflection this morning, and you could say we're we live in well, actually maybe it 's better images we 're swimming in an ocean of cause and effect, a vast ocean that 's made up of a complex serious, complex web of our network of of causal threads, you could say. And these these ripples that are constantly shifting and vibrating and rebounding off one another. There's an image that I love that that to me captures this. It's an image uh, that I heard from Gil Fransdahl once. And he had an image of a very uh, still pool, like on a clear, still day, windless day, like down at the pond, at the Gaston Pond you had a, a pool like that and you tossed a pebble in there would be ripples and then you tossed another one in and there would be another set of ripples and they would bounce off one another and you kept tossing pebbles in and there would become this complex way that those interacted and bounced and rebounded and and if you began that at the beginning of beginningless time And those pebbles are getting, you're tossing them in, and they're also getting tossed in from all kinds of other places. And so it gets very complicated. And in order to account for this moment right now, just feel it, this moment as it has come to be, and passed away, come to be another one, to account for the way it is right now, you would have to trace all those ripples back to the beginning of beginningless time. And this is considered to be imponderable. And to try and do this will cause your head to explode. You'll go mad and experience vexation. So it is um, suggested not to do this. We could say that when the Buddha surveyed, looked at this ocean of cause and effect, he chose to focus on a particular aspect of it, in the area of intention. And we've talked about intention in, in different ways, on the level of, um, of just the, the mental, uh, the pure mental uh, energy, the factor that arises constantly of chetana that just is like uh, electricity kind of it's the impulse to do things. It's about to. We feel it, this gathering of energy and that precedes all actions of body, speech, and mind. And, and intentions on a broader kind of scale. And I'm talking about intention as Chaitanya here, as this, just this energetic impulse in the mind to, to do And there's an essential understanding that's connected to this. All actions of body, speech, and mind have their origin in the mind. This takes us to the literal meaning of the word kamma or karma, which is action. Karma means action. Buddha stressed the way that intention is is, uh, at the root of this. Intention, I tell you, is kamma. Intending one does kamma. One acts by way of body, speech, or mind. So this chetana is neutral. It's just kind of pure energetic impulse, as I said. But there are all these other uh, mental qualities that um, might arise, and they... They inform that they give rise to it. They're constellated with it, so we can see this. I'm going to use the word motivation to make this distinction. And the qualities that inform give rise to an action. So the intention to act may be uh, may arise from greed, hatred, or delusion. It may arise from renunciation, love, or wisdom. So the same action may be born of different motivations. So we could think of examples of this. So maybe someone takes takes an axe and breaks down a door. Uses that uh, tool to break down a door. And they could be breaking down a door in order to go into some place to commit a robbery. Or they could be um, helping to rescue someone from a fire where the door is locked or something like that. So it's it's the action it's not so much in the action this you, know, you could say the the karmic weight Now this doesn't mean that just because our intention may be good that we have no responsibility for the impact of our actions We take care on that level too but when we look around the world and see all of the avoidable suffering War and violence and justice, all that's happening in that in that regard, we'll see if we look that these actions have their roots in someone's mind. They don't just happen. unwholesome mind states, greed hatred, various forms of Ignorance and delusion, fear, are giving rise to actions. And if we look in our own minds and hearts, we will see the seeds of war are right there. And the seeds of love, the seeds of peace. And in the opening verse, the very famous, often quoted opening verses of Two verses of the Dhammapada, the Buddha speaks directly to this. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is their chief. They are all mind-made. If with an impure mind one speaks or acts, suffering follows like the wheel of the cart follows the foot of the ox. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is their chief. They are all mind-made. If with a pure mind One speaks or acts. Happiness follows like one's never-departing shadow. And so for our own happiness, for happiness in the world, an understanding of, of how this functions is powerful. It informs our lives on this very basic level. And so we take responsibility for the motivations that we choose to follow. And mindfulness enables us to see this, recognize what's going on. In the moment of their rising, we have a choice then. If we see it, we have a choice. And there are all kinds of things that happen that, um, as a result of actions that are not born of, of a direct intention in the mind or heart but they have an impact. So let's say you're out taking a walk and the wind has blown a lot of leaves onto the pathway or the road and, and they've covered up one of those, those furry caterpillars and you don't see it and you step on it. And because of this action, the caterpillar is accidentally killed, loses its life. That can happen, these things happen. There was no intention to cause harm. There may have been every intention to avoid causing harm in the mind. That could be the general intention that we live by, and yet harm was ca- caused there. But there's, so there's no karmic weight there, but there is a flow of causes. It's part of this causal unfolding so after you've passed on by, the wind comes up and blows the leaves aside and someone following you sees the caterpillar and they jump aside to avoid stepping on it. They don't see that it's, they don't wanna step on it, whether it's dead or alive. And they slip and fall and they break their leg and you hear them cry out and you, you rush to the rescue and you help them get to the hospital. And on the way, there's this connection made and you fall in love. <laughs> You know, and you stay there at the hospital, and on the way back, you're just you let's stop at the store and buy a lottery ticket, you win the lottery, <laughs> and you live happily ever after. <laughs> you know, and so all of this, including the death of the caterpillar, is part of this flow of causes <laughs> unfolding there. Things happen, and it's like these ripples rebounding off of one another, so... Karma is part of that. There's all kinds of other factors. And so part of a good image for understanding how things work in this way is this uh, image of a seed, which we've used a lot in different ways, different times. And so a single seed has the power to bring about whole flowering plant or a tree, these acorns that are around now, and they could produce a giant oak tree that produces thousands of acorns and so many fruits that would come from an action. So actions born of uh, intentional actions function in the same way. They have the potential to bring about so many fruits as this flows forward in our lives. And so I think one way, reason the Buddha told Chose to focus on intentional actions is because understanding this is empowering and liberating for us. You know, we look at this chain of cause and effect and we take responsibility for the motivational energies that we choose to follow in, in acting with the understanding that actions born of wholesome motivations yield wholesome, positive results. And those born of unwholesome motivations lead to stress, struggle, suffering in our lives and the world. And so we can add something into this process with the, through the power of mindfulness and the ability to see what's going on. And, and so from um, what we might think of as kind of a maybe a Buddhist understanding, understanding of kama and how it functions, there's this there are these different, multiple feedback loops that are functioning in this. So the present moment is shaped by the past and by our choices and actions in the present. Those both come into play there. And our present actions shape also the future and the present, this moment right now, and flows forward into the future. And so, uh, and most important of all, Our present actions do not have to be determined by our past actions. We have a choice how we respond to the present moment's circumstances. And so this circles back to this question or subject of, is there free will? this is a quotation from Tanisaro Bhikkhu, Tom Jeff, as he goes by. There is free will, although its range is somewhat dictated by the past. The nature of this freedom is nicely symbolized in an image used by the early Buddhists of flowing water. Sometimes the flow from the past is so strong that little can be done except to stand fast. But there are also times when the flow is more gentle, gentle enough to be diverted into all, in almost any direction. Instead of promoting resigned powerlessness, the Buddhist notion of karma focuses on the liberating potential of what the mind is doing in every moment. Who you are, where you come, what you come from is not anywhere near as important as the mind's motives for what it is doing right now. A few years ago I was speaking on this subject and I Actually, my partner and a f- friend were, were listening to the talk, and I, I asked them what they thought afterwards. And, and uh, they said, well, yeah, not bad, but you kind of need to jazz it up a little bit. <laughs> so I, um, <laughs> some of you heard this. I came up with a, I don't know, what is it when you, and is it an acronym? Anyway, I guess it's an acronym. So, Karma. Kind action. Now this is really, this is really good. <laughs> kind actions really matter a lot. Brilliant. <laughs> so that's, this is my, that's my offering in jazzing up the talk. <laughs> it's not much, it's something. So, as we've been pointing at, we can't fathom the, of the complexity of this unfolding of cause and effect in, in our lives and the world. But where we, how we respond to the present moment, this is really kind of the, the focus or the... This is where spiritual life happens. Is right in that response. That's where everything comes to that moment. One of the Guy Armstrong, Armstrong was one of the teachers from uh, Part One this year. Uh, he likes to teach about karma, and I did. He, I think he gave a yeah, he gave a talk on the subject in the Part One, and um, he has a very clear way of talking about this subject. I think, and I he believe he calls uh, or has called uh, karma, the science of happiness. Did he use that expression this fall? May have. I I like this, the thinking of it as the science of happiness. If we understand the workings of karma, we can see that it it is a recipe for happiness. Uh, what we could think of as human happiness right here and now, maybe a more, um, exalted kind of happiness and the, uh, ultimately the happiness of liberation. So this dynamic process with new causes and effects and uh, causes and conditions and new ripples in this ocean constantly being added is very complex and dynamic, but there are certain uh, natural laws that govern how things unfold. And so if we go back to the image of a seed, if you plant a certain seed, you get a certain kind of plant. So if you plant a daisy seed, you're gonna get a daisy plant, not a sunflower. And so we can see this as, we can choose the kinds of seeds we want to plant. We can plant the seeds of our future happiness and our future suffering. And it's not that, we don't wanna get overly simplistic. It's not that there's a one-to-one ratio. If I do this, I will get that. It's too complicated for that. It doesn't mean that if we're careful that nothing bad is going to happen. So it's not a closed or mechanistic kind of system in that way. In some descriptions of uh, the Buddha's enlightenment, that time, that night, it's said that he was able, that, that his, his mind opened up to uh, seeing the functionings of karma in this vast kind of way. And he saw beings faring on according to their actions, according to their karma. And so he had this kind of vast view. And, and the teachings on karma point to the way that our actions bear fruit lawfully within one life and also it's understood that this carries through from one life to the next. In this sense, some some, some idea or, or relationship to the idea of rebirth might not have any meaning for us. But we don't have to believe in that to understand the workings of karma. We can see how this unfolds in each moment. And in a, in a very real way, as I have, and others may have said, each moment is a birth, a life, a death, and another one. There's another one. And we take birth in all kinds of realms. And so we can understand rebirth as this Flow of, of the process of conditioning. Each mind moment has a conditioning effect on the next one. And we can t- touch this and taste this directly in, our, in the flow of ongoing flow. And there is this sense of uh, continuity from one moment to the next. And they happen so fast. We don't see the arising and passing necessarily all the time. So there's this connection between our current actions and the unfolding of our future. It conditions that. And you can see this in terms of one lifetime to the next. So there's not a thing moving along through that. But there is this flow, this continuity. There's a a well-known sutta in the Middle-length discourses where the Buddha is instructing his son, Rahula. What do you think, Rahula? What is a mirror for? For reflection, sir. In the same way, Rahula, bodily actions, verbal actions, and mental actions are to be done with repeated reflection. Whenever you want to do a bodily action, you should reflect on it. This bodily action I want to do would it lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others or to both? Would it be an unskillful bodily action with painful consequences and painful results? If on reflection you know that it would be an unskillful bodily action with painful consequences and painful results, then any action of that sort is absolutely unfit for you to do. But if on reflection you know that it would not cause affliction, that it would be a skillful action with wholesome consequences and wholesome results, then it is fit for you to do. And he goes on in this teaching to recommend that Rahula reflect in the same way. So he said, reflect before you do it, reflect while you're doing it, and then reflect after you've done it. So check it thoroughly in these three ways, before, during, and after. And we could we could have a fear, you know, if we decided to take this on, that would lead to our lives being somehow, there. no spontaneity would be possible, or we'd be having to live in a state of hypervigilance, or something like that. But actually, I think we can see it as an aspect of living a conscious life. And we pay attention to our actions, the results of them. We take responsibility for the choices we make, for the motivations that are informing the actions we want to take. We take responsibility for the impact of our actions, which may not be the same as our intention. And We bring this um, care. It's like... Uh, I was talking about this sense of carefulness the other morning. This heedfulness. We have these these guidelines for our behavior. And this can lead to what the Buddha called the bliss of blamelessness. We've spoken about this. Or we, we live and act with care and integrity, not in some way that we're achieving perfection in that, but we still can live with confidence about our actions and words. And and there's an inner strength and a balance and a deep integrity that uh, comes from this, this bliss of blamelessness. Great joy can come in the mind and heart from this. So even though it's said that only a Buddha can understand the workings of karma within a single lifetime and over the course of multiple lifetimes, we can uh, touch into our own direct experience of this in in simple ways. I'll offer a couple of possible ways that we might uh, get a taste for this. So I I know many of you have reported and uh, many of you have experienced on retreat, especially times when then uh, there can be a flood of memories. A lot of memories may come up. And sometimes there there may be memories of things we didn't remember at all, had no recollection of at all. And they can be uh, very, very striking to the mind. And sometimes there may be memories of things we've done that uh, we have a, a lot of remorse about. And I remember on you know, the first uh, one of the very, f- I think, the first really long retreat I I sat. I was flooded at one time by memories of, of uh, from my youth and when I was quite young, and having been very cruel to insects. I was also. It wasn't just that there were also ways I was very kind to them, but I was cruel. And there was so much um, oh, really deep remorse for those actions and for the harm I had caused. And so, um, you know, where there's this impact. We feel the way that our actions leave this uh, impact in the mind and heart and and the feelings that can surface. This happened a long time ago and the feelings just as fresh as if I had just done it, surfacing in the heart. It, it appears that I am uh, one of the most uh, delectable favorite foods of biting insects as an, ad, as an adult, and I'm not drawing a direct link here, but generally uh, others are are safe from getting bites if I'm around. <laughs> I had a I was traveling in India once with my partner, and and we got a not great room <laughs> late at night, and and there were lots of uh, biting bugs in the bed, and. And I was just being bitten all night long and my partner slept like a baby. <laughs> and I was just I was covered in bites. I kept having to get up and try to put them out and then there just would be more. There seemed to be an endless supply of them. Um, and she would not have noticed at all if I hadn't been getting up and dancing around <laughs> covered with bugs. You know, and sometimes we'll have memories that come of past wholesome actions that we've done and And such a different feeling. The mind brightens and there's a sense of lightness and pleasant, happy feelings. And so we see how the past our past actions can impact our present moment experience in this way. Impacts the quality of our mind in meditation. We can see how mental states affect the way others respond, so this, this cause and effect. And karma as an expression of that. So, if we're, if our hearts, and minds are filled with anger or envy or fear or jealousy, then the response we get in re- our relationships is is one way. And if our heart and mind are full of of love and generosity or appreciation, then the response we get from others is very different. We see that's just direct. Uh, way that this uh, happens, and we might notice the workings of of cause and effect of karma. In terms of, um, you could say, habitual mental patterns that lead to predictable behaviors, and so, you know, we may have uh, certain kinds of mental habits, and and they lead to uh, similar kinds of of actions. Mental habits tend to condition certain kinds of actions. And and through repeating these actions, we're conditioning the tendency to do them again. It's more likely we'll do them again. And so when we act out of, when anger, fear, craving, or lust, or confusion are, are the driving force leading to our actions, then we're conditioning the tendency to to act those ways and when our actions are born of kindness and generosity, wisdom and so forth, wholesome things, then then we're conditioning the likelihood we'll do those kinds of things in the future. So, points to the fact of, that one can intentionally cultivate wholesome. We can cultivate the good. Refrain from doing what is unwholesome. And then, teaching, simple teaching in the Dhammapada. Ref- cultivate what is wholesome, do what is wholesome, refrain from what is unwholesome, purify the mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. And so we, we have this recipe or science of happiness in that we're giving this great personal responsibility for our lives. The choices that we make directly impact our, our, uh, the unfolding of our life. And so we begin with our internal world and the motivations that give rise to our actions. And this, in turn, has an effect, ripples out on the course of our life. And with mindfulness, we have the possibility to see what's going on there. You know, the motivations, we can see them. And, you know, sometimes we're not going to like what we see. You know, it may be that greed, hatred, or delusion have the upper hand. And sometimes our motivations are mixed. They're not only, always pure. But, but mindfulness is, is a complete game changer in our lives in the world. It changes everything. With mindful awareness, everything is possible. Without it, we will just be living out our conditioning. So there's this possibility that we're not going to be running on automatic and, and we're not acting out these habituated reactive patterns. We can choose when to act, if to act, which motivational energies we wish to follow. And so, back to the image of a seed, we can choose the seeds that we want to plant. And all sorts of factors come into play when we plant a seed. You know, in the subsequent growth of the plant. If we plant it carefully, where we plant it, the conditions of all kinds of things, the weather and other things, if we care for it, if it's fertilized and watered, if we read poems to it and sing songs to it. Maybe that has an impact too. And So this is true for our own lives. So how we are in the present, the choices we make in each moment has a powerful influence on the course and the unfolding of our life. And, and goodness in the present moment draws out the power of past wholesome actions. It pr- pulls that forward like a magnet might pull Iron filings brings that to fruition, this dynamic process. So everything we do has an impact on everything that has come before. It's said that, that karma, that karma, is our only true property. This is uh, some words from... Uh, Venerable Sayadaw Upandita. Our concepts of ownership and control over material objects are basically illusory, for all matter is impermanent and subject to decay. Kama is our only reliable possession in the world. Kama has an immediate effect upon the mind, causing joy or misery, depending on whether it is wholesome or unwholesome. It also has long-term consequences, Seeing life in this way gives us the power to choose the conditions under which we want to live. Thus, the view of Kama as our true reliable property is called the light of the world, for by it we can see and evaluate the nature of our choices. Right understanding of Kama is like a railroad, railroad junction where the train can choose its direction. So, the the power of our mind, of intention in the mind, is really vast and and has far, uh, the consequences of the choices we make are far reaching. And we can choose the kinds of seeds we wish to plant, and we can choose the direction in which we want to travel. Let's sit quietly together for a few moments. There's time now for walking meditation, that good old walk-in meditation, excellent in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end. So I invite you to do some of it, or some in-between meditation, and we'll gather at nine o'clock for chanting. Please be welcome for that.